Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. It's good to be seen. Also, we're in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3 this morning, uh, verses 1 through 12. So if you've got a Bible, you've got your app, you've got a black Bible on a chair next to you or one of the Scripture journals, turn to Matthew, chapter 3, uh, verse 1. Um, and we'll read from that in just a moment. I want to just reiterate what Trevor said as well, that, that if you are on the fringes, I know there are a lot of folks that have just kind of um, been uh, lingering and kind of coming over the last three months or so, and it truly is a pretty low obligation way to, uh, to engage with this church family, to build relationships, and it is a prime way uh, of establishing some connection within all of life, just through shoulder-to-shoulder work, just getting stuff done. Because, uh, because like a family, there's chores to be done. And so we set up chairs and banners and music and, and do all the things. Brew coffee because we could not do this without coffee, right? In the Northwest. Not true, but true. Uh, I want to ask you a question. Um, there's a word up on the screen. Prophet. What do you think of when I ask, when I say Prophet. What comes to your mind? What pictures are in your mind? What does a prophet look like? What are they doing? What are they saying? This is a time of dialogue. I want your feedback. Like, I want you guys to speak up. You're the 11 a.m. crew. You're not as sleepy as the last ones because you've got a couple more hours, right? What do you think of when you hear the word prophet? Okay, sent from God. Okay, proclaiming the word of God. So sent from God on a divine mission, proclaiming words out of God's mouth and very heart. What else? Persecuted. Persecuted. Sufferers. People don't like to hear some of the words coming out the prophet mouth, right? What else? Tells what's coming. So forth tells the future. Man, you guys speaking truth. Truth tellers. Forth tellers. Anything else come to mind? I think of uh, a, a bit of, like, when I imagine these prophets like Isaiah, especially Ezekiel, John the Baptist, um, what I imagine is outliers, like social outliers, um, people who seem to be kind of on the outside of the community for whatever reason, a very vital part of the community, but, but maybe hard to relate to on some, on some levels. Old Testament prophets of Israel, there are these, by the way, like the things that you said are in my notes. Like I'm going to give six points of kind of what a prophet, an Old Testament, some qualities of an Old Testament prophet. And I think you guys hit everyone, if not everyone just now. So I'm, I'm just, I'm impressed. Thank you uh, for being students of who God is and what he's done in history. Prophets of Israel, they were human agents sent by God, called by God. And, and they, they had a particular purpose. It was to bring about Israel's renewal. Prophets originated after the fall, after humanity was in sin, in active rebellion against God. And so God sent prophets as these agents, human agents, to bring about the renewal of Israel. They're typically men, but five times in the Old Testament, there is a prophetess mentioned, a woman. Um, so there were, there were people who were essentially heralds, a herald is one who proclaims something, who announces news of sorts. Uh, prophets were non-ignorable. 
I'm using that phrase on purpose. They were non-ignorable messengers with essential news. You couldn't ignore them. You heard them. You heard what they were saying. You just had to choose, would you accept it or would you reject it? They were non-ignorable messengers with essential news from God for the people of Israel. So here are six marks, six distinct marks of a prophet. Not, ex- not, um, not exhaustive, but I think particular here. Number one, a prophet was called by God. They received a specific and a personal call from God. The initiative in making a prophet, so the initiative in making a prophet, it always rests with God. The false prophet is the one who takes the office upon themselves and declares themselves a prophet. So a prophet was called by God. You'll see it in Isaiah, Ezekiel. You'll see it in Jeremiah. You'll see it in some of the minor prophets as well. The word of the Lord came to me. They weren't out conjuring something. The word of the Lord came to them with a particular power and purpose. So they were called by God. Number two, prophets were, I don't know if you've thought about it this explicitly, but they were devoted to prayer. Prophets were devoted to communing with God to communion with him. The entirety of a prophet's ministry, it was possible only through communicating with God. He would speak to them. They would speak to the people. They would come to him looking for wisdom and looking for um, circumstantial um, strategy in the life of Israel. And they would then guide Israel as they heard from the Lord. So they were called by God, they, were, they called upon God, and they lived in personal relationship with God. They were called by him, they were devoted to prayer. Number three, prophets were also preachers. They were proclaimers. And they proclaimed not their own words, but they proclaimed the word of God. The words of God. God spoke to these prophets and then would speak through the prophets of Israel. And so you'll hear them say repeatedly in these Old Testament books like Isaiah and Ezekiel, the minor prophets, you'll hear Jeremiah, you'll hear them say repeatedly, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, because they were speaking for themselves. No. Because they were speaking from the Lord. This is what the Lord says. They believed that the spoken words of God would, would change entire situations. And that they would do so by bringing about this, the transformation of, uh, of the heart in those that they spoke to. And so the whole nation of Israel would reform her practices, but also the individuals of the nation would reform their way of life too. And so their standard, a prophet's standard was whatever they spoke from God, it had to be true. Whatever a a prophet spoke on behalf of God, it had to be true. If it was not true, if they were speaking about future events that did not come to pass, they would be deemed a false prophet and that charge was punishable by death. The consequence of being a false prophet was you would be punished by being put down. You cannot speak falsely on behalf of God. So it was a very serious and life and death office. Number four, prophets, they were calling the people of Israel to return to God through a vehicle of repentance. The vehicle of laying down pride, relenting, 
A prophet's job was to call the people to return to the Lord. Or you'll hear it repeatedly in the Old Testament prophets, to remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Why? Because we are forgetters. This this, uh, proclamation of repentance had always had a specific aim, and the aim was to turn God's people away from idolatry, away from worshiping people, places, things, subjects, power, whatever it might be that they look to um, to satisfy them and to bring about a sense of um, nourishment or satisfaction, whatever it might be, to turn them from this false worship and to turn them to God. The Israel, the uh, I'm sorry, the prophets warned Israel and her leader kings of God's wrath and his judgment. So they were bringing ominous, like there was an ominous tone many times in the Old Testament prophets because they're bringing warning of judgment and the wrath of God due to these people for their rebellion or rejection of God. So these prophets, they called the Israelites to turn to God. So it wasn't only warning, turn away from your sin and then stop there. No, it was turn away from your sin and turn toward God because when the people of God turned away from their sin or their idolatry and they turned toward God, what would they receive from him? Rejection? Wrath? No, mercy. Mercy, mercy, mercy. And so prophet's ministry of calling the people to repentance was a ministry of mercy. Take hold of what is available to you. I'll say it like this. God always regards the genuine white flag. God always regards the genuine white flag. When you're waving the flag of surrender, your God hears you, just as he has done throughout the generations since the beginning. Number five, prophets were truth tellers, and they were also forth tellers. At times, they would speak uh, from the Lord about future events. So they would, they, would, they would prophesy about what would come to pass in the future. Um, in Christian circles, sometimes you'll hear the word prophetic used, like, wow, that was a prophetic word, or I just really felt like that was prophetic, or this will be prophetic. Well, prophetic is typically used in two sentences, at least in our circles. Two sentences, uh, or two senses, rather. One is truth-telling. Uh, so telling something that just aims straight at the soul, a kind of truth that just embeds itself within you and can't help but be from the Lord as it also is in alignment with what the scriptures say. So prophets of the Old Testament, they were constantly saying things like, thus says the Lord or the word of the Lord came to me. Now, they were also foretellers as well, which means that they would tell about future events so that you'll hear them in the Old Testament saying things like, in those days, it will come to pass. In those days, out in the beyond, it will come to pass. Or, the, or you will see it like this. You'll see in future days. Or it shall be like blank on this coming day prophets, they would tell the truth about what God values, but they would also tell the future about what God would make come to pass, okay? So in Matthew's gospel, we're going to see these Old Testament quotations on the regular. They're constantly coming, and Matthew is setting up the quotations that align with the life of Jesus by saying things like, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, or so that what was spoken by the prophets might come to pass. 
So prophets were truth-tellers, and they were also forth-tellers. And then number six, this is my last one on just kind of orienting us to the ministry of an Old Testament prophet. Prophets were clothed with the non-ignorable power of God. Prophets were clothed. They were, they were surrounded. They were empowered by the non-ignorable power of God. He would often perform mighty acts through his prophets. So in many ways, uh, multiple Old Testament prophets were miracle workers. Think about uh, Moses as he um, was confronting Pharaoh with these 10 uh, different warnings and judgments. At one point, he would turn uh, by the word of the Lord. He would turn the Nile River, the Nile, not the North Fork of the Coeur d'Alene, the Nile into blood. It was supernatural. It was outside of naturalistic explanation to show that God was powerful and had control over all of the elements. Moses would also lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, and they would cross the Red Sea. And the scriptures tell us that they, in Exodus that they crossed on dry ground, another supernatural event not explainable by natural means. Uh, Elijah, who's a prophet that we'll talk about here in a little bit, he called fire down from heaven on multiple occasions, on multiple enemies who were, who were, who were unrepentant. He also called down rain from heaven uh, in a season of great drought. He raised a widow's son from the dead. Hearts were transformed at the words of these prophets as they called for repentance. If you remember the story of Jonah in the Old Testament, Jonah would preach, repent. He didn't want to. His heart was not in it either. He hated the Ninevites legitimately. But he was so pursued by God that he couldn't help but unburden himself by doing what God told him to do. And so he called the, this, the city of Nineveh to repent, and 120,000 people obeyed the word of the Lord. Additionally, Deborah was a prophetess who advised a king who was cowardly and, and obstinate to uh, what God was, seemed to be leading them to do and therefore won a war and preserved the nation of Israel by this wisdom as he was guided through this prophetess Deborah. They had, uh, like was said earlier, they had a mixed reception. They were despised and they were abused. They were hated by people at times. But they were also, the prophets were also esteemed and respected by the people and by some kings. Uh, they were watchdogs of the nation of Israel, consistently calling the nation back to true worship. And one thing that's kind of interesting about prophets is they had a nature like ours. In James, it's either four or five of the New Testament, the brother of Jesus, James, wrote that Elijah was a man, quote, with a nature like ours. What he wanted his readers at that time to understand was that Elijah was clothed with the power of God, but he was human. He was human. And so because of their humanity, they were susceptible to pity parties. There are times when Elijah was having a pity party for himself. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because the nation constantly rejected him and abused him. At one point, put him in like stocks and just had him like this in the city center in these wooden stocks for days. They were also prone to disobedience, like Jonah. He didn't want anything to do with what God was telling him to do, and so he bailed. He got on a ship the other direction when God was calling him to go to Nineveh. 
So these are some marks. These are some, some uh, just to try to orient you to the ministry of Old Testament prophets. That's, that, that was much of their function in the nation of Israel. There's more, uh, but there's not less. So I want to I wanna now transition to um, the man, John the Baptist, and I want to also transition to his message. So that's kind of how this is going to go. This is how it's going to flow this morning. We're going to talk a little bit about the man, John the Baptist, and then we're also going to talk about his specific message here in Matthew. Matthew chapter 3. Now, John the baptizer was an Old Testament prophet. He was the last Old Testament prophet. Have you ever thought about that? As I've been studying this, I've been struck by this understanding that he was the last Old Testament prophet. He was the prophet who came right before the new covenant was inaugurated by Jesus. So what happened in, uh, in, in our Old Testaments is the last book organizationally of your, of your Old Testament is the book of Malachi. Uh, it's not the way the Hebrew scriptures were originally ordered. Chronicles was the last book chronologically, but, but Malachi was a prophet who was living during the time of the Chronicles or the, during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And he is the last functional chronological prophet to speak from the Lord in the nation of Israel. And after he would speak, 400 years of silence would ensue until the time that John the Baptist begins speaking. So the nation of Israel is in 400 years of silence, and Malachi, this Old Testament prophet, he foreshadowed this forthcoming prophet who would come right before the nation, before the prophets would go silent for that 400-year span. It's called the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Malachi says this in the last two verses of his letter. He says, behold, I will send, the Lord is speaking this through him. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the, the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he, this prophet, will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So something's going to be happening in the social fabric of the land. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So there's warning here too in Malachi's words. Now, John the Baptist fits the bill of this Elijah to come, spoken of by Malachi right here. Later in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist's disciples would come to him asking if Jesus was the Messiah, looking for confirmation. Jesus would speak to them and speak to his own disciples and, and the crowds, and he would say this in John chapter 11. If you're willing to accept it, these are the words of Jesus, if you're willing to accept it, John himself is the Elijah who is to come. So Jesus is confirming Malachi's words that there's an Elijah coming, and he's saying it's John the Baptist. Jesus would later go on to say there is nobody born among men greater than John the Baptist. He's the greatest human being to ever live except Jesus Christ. Now, John was a bit of a, he, he, he was, you'd, you'd notice him. Let's just put it that way. He, he was not going to be ignored. He wore uh, furry clothes made of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts. Matthew tells us as much. He wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt. His food was locusts and wild honey. Uh, this is how, living off the land, living in a sustainable way, this is how the poorest in the land, this is how they lived. People of the Middle East, to this day, they still will eat locusts. 
Though powerful, though the people were paying attention to him, Joseph was a humble man. He lived on what God provided him, and he seemed to reject the worldly wealth and ways of living among the people. He lived in the wilderness. He camped full-time. He ate off of the land, and he, he was dressed from clothing that came from the, the land as well. But John's garments here, it's an interesting, uh, it's something interesting that, that Matthew draws in. He specifically des- describes John's clothing. Why? Because it's an allusion to 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, that's talking about the prophet Elijah. The prophet Elijah, the, the king was hatching some plans of Elijah's day, and the king sent some messengers down to fulfill a task, and it was outside of God's plan. Elijah interrupted these messengers and said, no, don't do that. Instead, go back to the king and tell him this. And so these messengers obey this prophet Elijah, and they go back to the king, and they report what Elijah told them to report, and the king says, what did he look like? And they said he wore camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And the king's response was, it's Elijah the Tishbite. So Matthew here is directly wanting his audience who is trained in the Old Testament because they're converts from Judaism. He wants them to correlate Elijah to come and John the Baptist here. Like Elijah, who had a really powerful ministry in his day, John the Baptist got himself noticed as well. Look at verses 5 and 6. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to John, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So John the Baptist, he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, The first words of his ministry were repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew tells us this is he who was spoken of also by the prophet Isaiah, who would be one crying or howling in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Matthew describes for us what he was wearing. And then in verse 5, he says, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan River were going out to John the Baptist, and they were being baptized by him in the River Jordan, and they were confessing their sins. His preaching was clothed with power. He was told of from old. His preaching was being shared around. Word of mouth was getting out. And people were coming to listen to his preaching, his proclamation, but also to respond to it as well. And the ministry of John the Baptist, the reputation of John the Baptist, it grew. And the people from the Jewish capital, Jerusalem, and from this whole land of Jerusalem, they began coming to John for a peculiar peculiar thing. What they were coming to him for was to confess their sin. So this is what's happening. They're leaving the temple mount. They're leaving the temple, the place where God's presence is supposed to dwell, the place where they are supposed to offer their sacrifices, which is likely that they were still doing the ritual acts. But there was, it was almost like the heart of Jerusalem was dead. God was not speaking through the prophets. The people were doing what was right in their own eyes while still going through the religious motions. And they start to hear of this prophet speaking again in the wilderness after a dry period of 400 years in this nation. 
And so they go and they sit under his preaching and they begin to show outwardly through immersion in this Jordan River what was happening in them internally. And so John the Baptist, his baptism, it was new and it was unfamiliar to most of the people as a, as a, as a, a ceremony prescribed by the law in the Old Testament. But what this baptism was, it was, it, it was a true display. It was something to see. It was essentially proof externally of what was happening in the people internally. In the Old Testament, we'll see ritual acts of getting into waters and being submerged as an act of cleansing. We'll see the act of getting into waters and being submerged and coming out of them as an act of healing. We'll also see as Gentiles, those who are non-Jews, want to come into the nation of Israel. One of the ways that they would do that would be by going into the waters and coming out of the waters, symbolizing their cleansing as they put off their Gentile way of life and take on a distinctly Jewish way of life. And so John's baptism was, it, it, it was like they would have a category for it, but not in the means by which John the Baptist was, was bringing it forward here. It was a visible action on the part of the people to show the condition of their hearts before God. They were showing that they knew that they were guilty and they understood that God was holy and they understood that someone was speaking again, that he was speaking again through his people, through John the Baptist. And so they were hungry for God's presence and through confession of their own sin and through faith in the mercy of God available to them, they had an understanding, the people did, that God would satisfy them. Jesus would say it himself in Matthew chapter 5 as he begins his great sermon. He would say, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The people had an understanding internally that God would meet them. As they confessed their fallenness, as they confessed their pride, as they confessed their shortcomings, God would meet them. And so John's baptism would also serve to be a kind of foreshadowing of Jesus' own baptism in the river, which we'll get into next week, as well as his, his institution of one of our sacraments, the command upon belief to be baptized. So John is preparing the path for the Lord. He's preparing the way for Jesus' new covenant ministry here. And his very first word, so John's message, his very first word is repent. The first word in his sentence is repent. I'm going to just kind of frame this or categorize his message in, in three ways this morning. Practice repentance, bear fruit, and a mighty one is coming. Or you could reverse it and say a mighty one is coming. So practice repentance and you will bear fruit. Those are kind of the three hooks that I'm going to hang the message on. Repentance essentially means to turn directions, to change direction. To turn, it's, it comes with a warning. Turn your life around because God and his, and his kingdom are imminent. They're at hand. They're near. The message of repentance is a message with dire consequences. Uh, John Meyer, a theologian, said it this way. He said, within. So internally, one must change one's mind and heart about what is important in life and then change one's outward life accordingly. 
So the change begins in the mind and it begins in the internal person, the interiority of our lives. And then from that interior place, our way of life should match it. If it's mere lip service, but no fruit, I have great doubt and we should have great doubt if we are truly repentant. Repentance should bring about a change of our actual life, the feel, the vibe of our life. John will confront these religious rulers, the, people, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, with the consequences of their non-repentance, of their hard-heartedness, of their arrogance, of their pride. There's a wrath to come if you don't relent. There's a wrath to come if you don't relent. So uh, look at me. Tune, tune in if you're tuned out. I hope you're, I hope you're not. But repentance is a word is a theological framework that we must not roll our eyes at. It is not old-fashioned. It is the first word of John's ministry, and it is the first word of Jesus' ministry. It's not a word that is old-fashioned. It's not a word that we should scoff and sniff at and kind of just like put in a different category, oh, that's how they did it back then. Repentance is a word we must not reject. There's actually not an an English equivalent to the Greek word used here, metaneo, for repentance. So I I understand in our churches of origin, in uh, Catholicism, in, in other spheres of life, Like repentance, as you hear that word, it probably comes with a degree of baggage for you. But I want to ask you to embrace it, to consider what it looks like to embrace a true form of biblical repentance. Not what you were handed down just because you were handed it down, but truly what it is biblically. Our work as followers of Jesus is to embrace the action of repentance and to make it our friend, to make repentance our favored tool. A surgeon has a favored tool in his arsenal, and it's a scalpel. And the scalpel cuts out in order to heal. It cuts open in order to bring healing. Repentance is like that for us. It can be our favored tool, our vital tool. Like I said, first word of of John's ministry, first word, most importantly, of Jesus' ministry. And as God, even as our first parents sinned in the garden, against God, doing what he told them, the first act of doing what he told them not to do, rebellion. That's what it was. doesn't matter what they did. The act, the heart was rebellion. He came calling for Adam, saying, what have you done? He came calling for Eve, saying, what have you done? The essential news of that question is, there is something that you need to confess. There is something that you need to disclose. There is something that you need to stop living out of and return to me. Martin Luther said, Uh, He set off the Protestant Reformation in 1517. He said, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. He willed our entire life to be a continual practice of repentance. To to, To make a practice of repentance is to make a practice of laying down our pride. Repentance makes war on our pride. Repentance is not groveling. I want to bring that distinction. 
Repentance is not, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. We've got a ton of that. Jesus Christ calls us saints who still sin. But what repentance is, is the admission that we get it wrong. It's the, it's the, it's the disclosure that we understand our humanity has us continually falling on our face before him. And it's the eager, it, repentance includes the admission, but it also includes like the reaching out and laying hold of the mercy that's available to us and the forgiveness and the grace being bestowed on us through Jesus stepping in in our place. Repentance is a two-sided coin, confession of guilt, but, but also like apprehension of the mercy available to us. It is a beautiful thing. You know it because when you repent to that person that you're in conflict with because you're in the wrong, what immediately comes off of your shoulders? Weight, guilt, division. Repentance is our vital tool. It's an understanding of our creatureliness in the face of a holy God who loves us but who will not clear the guilty and the unrepentant, those who, 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 who insist on holding on to what it is that we think will satisfy us outside of him. Now, here's our frequent mistake. To repent, for many of us, it means like, die, like, like putting something to death that we are unwilling to put to death in our life because we believe a lie that it will satisfy us more than God himself will. And so we cling to it, and it brings division between us and the Lord. And so we kind of look and look down our noses or roll our eyes at this, this word or this idea of repentance, and we call it old-fashioned. And we kind of tuck it in the corner, and we focus on grace and mercy and grace and mercy and love and this and that without actually, like, disclosing who we are and what we're up to and what we're believing internally. And we fail to, to see that, 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 that walking away from those things or at least subverting those under the lordship of Jesus Christ, that's actually what will lead to our rescue, what will lead to a soothed consciousness within us or conscience within us, what will lead to peace with God and reconciled relationship. To repent is to let go of what brings on our destruction in order to lay our hands on and build our lives on what brings us ultimate delight. Let me say it another way. To repent is to let go of a pebble in order to pick up gold. You lay down something lesser, even though it looks like it's promising you all the things right now, in order to take hold of that which is life, God himself. Augustine said it like this. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. We are made for God. Our hearts are restless until they come to sit at rest in God himself, till our hearts find their rest in him. John the Baptist was calling these people of the land to repent. The prophets quiet in the land for four centuries. The United States is not even that old. Nobody is speaking from God. In all of this time, naturally, the people felt distant. The religious rulers were doing what they thought would be right in their own eyes. The truth is the people probably were distant from God, felt a distinct hunger. I suspect that many of you feel dry too. This year, I think, has had a net effect on um, pulling us out of community rhythms. 
away from our Bibles, away from our spiritual rhythms, disconnected from those things that, that bring us a sense of life and awareness of God's presence. I know this year is, I have never struggled so much to be in the word of God as I have this year. And I have more reason to be in it than I ever have in my life. I'm just consistently struggling. And I wonder if that's true for you too. It's just hard. The motivation isn't there. And so I want to ask this question. Do you have a, a hunger for God, but not the motivation to set yourself before him in prayer and through his word? I think our work together, church, as individuals and as a community is to repent and lay down our pride that we can just eke it out on our own, that we can live life apart from his gracious hand in our life. As we repent, as we lay down our pride, he will bear fruit in our lives. He will bring about fruit in our lives. We will bear fruit by his grace. And that's one of John's warnings to these Pharisees and Sadducees as well. He calls them to bear fruit that keeps with their repentance, that's consistent with their inner way of life. Bear outer fruit that's consistent with what's, go with what's going on inner, inside you. So these Pharisees, these Sadducees, they come to, uh, to John the Baptist here, and he's got stark words. You snakes. <laughs> you would be offended if he said that to you. They were the most powerful religious people of the day. It's on, first words. He's not being like an ambassador in any way, and it's just like make war. There's a declaration right here. Snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So he gives them a command right here. And he says, and don't presume to say to yourself. So it's like preemptively. He knows where they're going to go. They're going to they're accuse him of not being a son of Abraham. And they're going to say that they are sons of Abraham and that they're all good. They're the people of God. And he says, no, no, no. Like, I've got your number. Don't presume to say that because God will raise up from stones children for himself. There's probably a wordplay going on here between the words stones and what's translated as children in the ESV. I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, John gives this like hardcore, distinct, sharp warning. The ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's fiery. He has the discernment of a prophet. Who invited you? He could read him like a book. I don't know about you, but I really value a relational, emotional EQ. I, I, have, I, have, I, I value a person who has some emotional quotient. What that means is a high EQ is the, the, the ability to um, understand how you show up in a group of people and, and, and live accordingly. John the Baptist probably doesn't, isn't like scoring super high on the EQ side. There's a time when we just don't play, and John the Baptist knew it. He knew it. He was a righteous man called by God. He doesn't play with these Pharisees at all, so he gives this command, bear fruit for God that matches a life of repentance. He knew that these religious leaders of his day were serving themselves by serving God. They were serving themselves by serving God. But when a man or a woman truly serves God, is reborn in the heart, is living a life of confession, but also remembering what Christ has done, 
our, the fruit of our life, the fruit of that kind of person's way of life, is all, it always comes out in serving people regardless of those people's worth or worthiness in a situation. It always comes out in service. When we yield uh, to God, our lives begin to bear distinct fruit. Um, and I think like on the front end, it, it comes hard. Like exercise comes when you've been sitting on the couch for a long time. It just like hurts. But over time, uh, it begins to come more easily. And it comes also with results that we don't expect. Like when we begin into a routine of exercise and activity, uh, we, we have a sense that we look better. We have a sense that we feel better. We have a sense of we, we absorb stress and, and deal with it better. Our mental health improves. Even our sleep patterns begin to improve. I think repentance is, is like that. It comes hard at first. It's, it's so foreign to the human heart, really, in many ways. But, I, but God, I, I know that he uses our willing repentance to grow fruitfulness in us. He's that generous. He's that gentle. We're caught. We're guilty. We're red-handed. We're filled with pride. The most humble among us still struggle on a regular basis with pride. Yet the, like the best father in all of existence, he gives good gifts to his kids. And so as we live and we lean into and we embrace like a vital tool, repentance, we begin to bear fruit. And some of the very fruit, first fruit that begins to come out of a repentant person's way of life is humility. Humility before him, recognizing our place, but also humility before others and how we interact. We're willing to not have the right answers all the time. We're willing to not domineer the people in our charge. We're willing to extend forgiveness. We're willing to accept forgiveness. Additionally, hungry new passions for him, his goodness, his word begin to um, come to power in our lives. We, 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 we long for him. We long to know his word that we might not continue to sin against him. And so we, we, we just, we find ourselves regularly like thinking of the word and coming um, to, to know it. We extend mercy to those around us who don't deserve it in the world's eyes or in our eyes. Uh, we pursue peace in the streets as the people of God. Not mayhem in the streets, but peace in the streets. And we live to serve those who are under-resourced. The trinkets of this world, they begin to lose their appeal on us as we live lifestyles of confession, lifestyles of remembering the gospel. They appear dim. The stuff of tomorrow's landfills, homes, climbing the, the ladder at work, like building the thing, getting the new tech in the pocket, like those things begin to feel a bit more like trinkets the longer we go because we understand that, that they truly are the stuff of tomorrow's landfills and they won't satisfy us in many of the ways that we look to them to satisfy us. So here's what, I'll, I'll just kind of wrap that up in a statement. We're satisfied with less worldly because we have been satisfied by more, capital M more, Jesus Christ himself, his, God's presence in our lives. 
John's message of repentance here, it also, uh, this message of repentance and, and a call to bear fruit, it also comes with this two-sided promise of warning and promise. There is the, the kingdom of repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you repent, the, the citizenship of the kingdom of heaven, God's rule over the hearts of men and women is available to you, will take you in, will we'll seat you at the table, will make a place for you. But if you refuse to repent, judgment is coming for you. And so he says that one, I baptize you with water for repentance, Matthew 11. But Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, he's mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. John's saying he's not worthy to be the lowliest servant in a house, taking off Jesus' sandals and washing his grimy feet. Remember, Jesus called John the greatest among men. And John is saying, I'm not even worthy to be the lowliest servant of this one. Remember what Jesus did too. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He, what did he do with his disciples? He washed their feet. He didn't ask them to wash his. This one will baptize you, John says, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus' spirit will bring a fire that purifies, but also that will destroy all that is worthless. It will purify and reduce to a substance, and if there's nothing of worth within, it will be eradicated, but it will also purify his people. John says, or Matthew says in verse 12, his, the Messiah's winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. He's using an agrarian example here where the, 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 the winnowing fork is like this um, four-pronged kind of straight big fork, like a pitchfork basically, and they would throw the, the wheat up into the air and the wind would take the chaff, all the dust and the stubble around the grain and the seed and kind of blow it off to the side and the grain would fall straight down because it was heavier. And so what John is saying is that Jesus is sorting out his people. Can you feel the weight and the urgency of John's message? John says, I baptize you with water, which is essentially to show people's repentant hearts, to, to give them an outward show of an inward change here, but there's, there's, there's more needed. But he will come, this Messiah will come, who will saturate you with his spirit, and the spirit of God in the people of God will give the people of God the ability to say no to themselves, to deny themselves as followers of Jesus, and instead to say yes to God through Christ or in Christ. The Spirit will empower the people to make war on their proud sin, to find it a joy to lay our pride down, our arrogance down, and to serve those around us who don't deserve any of this favor either. That's what is coming through the life of Jesus Christ. He's going to be teaching his people a new way, but the teaching isn't just going to be all on us. He's going to give us a new way through the Spirit of God who, res who resides in us. And the Spirit of God, as we say yes to Jesus Christ, will empower us to say yes more often 
and in greater ways as we live our lives to say no to ourselves, to serve the people around us, to literally create new hearts within us. This Old Testament prophet is calling the people of God to pay attention and to come to him. And we'll see next week that Jesus arrives on the scene and his first act of his ministry is to be baptized, to, ass- to affirm John's ministry. That's Jesus' first act. And then the first words of his ministry will also be like John's. Another affirmation of John's ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Father, where this needs to settle in for us, where um, your people in this room uh, need an embrace of repentance, uh, need to uh, perhaps process the baggage and the hurt and the harm that that word spoken by people over time has done to them. Would you help us, would you help your people to, to be freed from the bondage of an incorrect view of what repentance means? And would you help us, every one of us, myself first, would you help us continually embrace repentance as an act of unloading our sin and our fault before you, but simultaneously reaching out to discover and cling to your goodness and your help and your nearness and your presence. For those in this room that are struggling with belief, draw them to faith. Do in them what only you can do. Do in us what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.